How are we, church? Good, good. Excited to continue on here uh, with part two of the Spirit and Prayer-Led Life. Uh, before I do get going, though, just uh, want to point out, uh, again, in our bulletins, there's uh, the question and response paper with the uh, QR code for Slido. So as we work through this series on, on our philosophy of church membership, uh, we're trying to invite questions. And so if you have questions in light of this sermon or in light of last week's or even any of the previous weeks, uh, do feel free to ask those. Um, if you don't have access to the QR code, ask someone around you or, or whatnot. I'm sure you can find one somewhere. And then, um, yeah, the way that Slido works, of course, as most of us know, is just uh, you can put up the questions. They're all, it's all anonymous unless you put your name on there. Um, and then they can get voted up. So if you see a question that you really like or intrigued by, uh, you can like it and it'll head on up to the top and then we'll try to answer the top three or four questions uh, as time allows. So uh, with that, like I said, the Spirit and Prayer Led Life Part 2. So this is week five of our, our membership series. Uh, and in Taproot, the way that membership works itself out, of course, is that we structure our membership around our core values. So our, our core values are, number one, the authority of Scripture. And when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we're just talking about how uh, Scripture is our foundation, that we believe that Scripture is breathed out by God, that it's profitable, it means it's useful, it's good for correction, for reproof, for teaching, uh, and in and through Scripture, uh, it, it matures us. And so we, we value Scripture. And really, everything goes back to, to Scripture. The, the way that we live out, for example, the Spirit and prayer-led life really comes back to uh, the authority of Scripture. The way that we interact with one another comes back to the authority of Scripture. And so uh, this is our foundation. Our second core value is the centrality of the gospel, uh, in which we're just declaring this reality that Jesus is king. Gospel just means good news, and the good news is that Jesus is king. He's the king, he's the God-man king who entered into human history, lived perfectly in our place, died the death that we should have, uh, was buried, laid in a grave for three days, rose from that grave, ascended to a throne. He's ruling and reigning now as Lord and King. And, and salvation, what salvation is, is a life of allegiance to this King, a life dedicated to this King. And so we declare this reality that, that Jesus is King overall. And then our third core value is the spirit and prayer-led life, which we're working out into two uh, sections. We talked last week, just kind of an overall uh, overview of, of the spirit-led life and, and talked about kind of our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, really just getting at the heart of the spirit being the third person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so spirit's not like some kind of mysterious force, uh, although there is a lot of mystery when it comes to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we, we can't live lives as followers of Jesus on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to be in us. And the reality for every single follower of Jesus is that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's, it's not something that we need to ask to have happen to us. It, it has happened. It is the reality. God's Spirit dwells inside of us. And then going into prayer this morning, we're talking about how uh, this is just essential to the life of a follower of Jesus. And then next week, well, no, not next week. I think, I think next week we have someone else preaching, if I remember right. Uh, if not, we'll be talking about the simplicity of the local church, and then we'll wrap things up with the flourishing of humanity. So that's, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. And what we're doing is, is this, is, is we're really trying to work out or to give a vision of what it looks like to be a particular kind of people. 
the church. And I hope that we agree that the, the church is supposed to be a particular and unique kind of people. It's made up of individuals, but collectively, we exist, as, uh, as Jesus would tell us, as uh, a city on a hill, as, as salt to give preservation, as, as light. And, and so we do this collectively. We, we see in Scripture that we are a people who are called out. In other words, we're not a community of comfort, but of calling. To be a follower of Jesus is absolutely challenging, but it's also life-giving. And so collectively, what we see in Scripture is that we are an outpost for the kingdom of God, a city on a hill, salt of the earth. We live by a different ethic, Sermon on the Mount, to be witnesses to our King Jesus. That's why we exist. And this is always, as we see it in Scripture, a collective reality. We don't do this individually. Yes, individually we can be obedient followers of Jesus, but we collectively are to live out and interact with one another in such a way that represents King Jesus to the world around us. It's like one of those kind of, there's a power in numbers reality, right? That when we're seen as a collective whole, living differently than everyone else, that winds up making a difference. And so this morning, I want to start out by asking just a couple of questions to kind of provoke some thinking in us. Okay? And so I want you to, I want you to at, hear these questions, and I want you to just kind of answer them to yourselves. And the first is this. Why are we here? Why are you here? on a Sunday morning. It's beautiful outside. It's not as beautiful in here. I mean, you're beautiful, but you know, the sun's shining, guys. Like there's so, there's so many good things that we could be doing on a Sunday morning, especially today, right? Like there's a big worship event we could all be getting ready for right now. Maybe, maybe an event that some of you are anticipating more than being here. I don't know. <laughs> Why are we here? For some of us, maybe it's just what we've always done. Like this is, this is the norm. This is the rhythm that has been ingrained in our lives. We've always done it. Some of us might be here because we think it's good for someone in our family. Parents who think, oh, I, I need to go to church because it's going to be good for my kids. Or maybe you're like, oh, I need to go to church because it's going to be good for my spouse. Never mind the fact that it might be good for yourself. It's good for someone else. Maybe you're here because you love the people. I think that's a really good reason. I know many of us just, Taproot's a cool church, so loving the people, that's legit. Maybe, maybe we love the preaching. thought I'd ask. Perhaps more than anything, we just love Jesus. And I'd be willing to bet that it's some combination of all of those. Right? That for many of us, it is. It's what we've done our whole lives. For many of us, we just know that this is good for us. We love the people. Preaching's all right. Jesus is awesome. Why are you here? What's your reason? 
Second question is this. What is the hopeful outcome of you being here? So not only why are we here, but what's the point? What is, what is this whole thing supposed to do? If we're going to give, you know, an hour and a half to two to two and a half hours on a Sunday morning, I don't know if you've noticed, the gatherings have been increasingly getting longer. <laughs> if we're going to dedicate this time on a Sunday morning, I, I think it, it's a legitimate question for us to ask. Like, what are we here for? What's the hopeful outcome? Or to put it another way, what is our trajectory as followers of Jesus? Ask yourself that. What is your trajectory as a follower of Jesus? And maybe for some of us, we, we've never asked this question. Some of us might not have a trajectory. Maybe we didn't know that we're supposed to, right? Like how many of us have had that experience in life where, where we got taught something that seemed to be like normal for everyone else? We're like, I just had no idea. I, I think that's how life in the church often works. I don't think we're often given this idea of a particular trajectory or direction for ourselves as followers of Jesus. Or if we are given the trajectory, many of us just don't know how to get there. Or, or to put it another way, many of us in this space perhaps just feel stuck as followers of Jesus. Here, I'll just put that in a question form. You, can, you, know, you don't have to answer it, but how many of you just kind of feel stuck? Perhaps dry or just like you haven't really been moving forward all that much. Right. Uh, you know, one step forward, two steps back, something like that when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. I think many of us might understand Christianity like that. But what I want us to understand is that that's not our desire, nor is it Jesus' desire, nor is it the Holy Spirit's desire. What we see clearly in the New Testament, what I hope to portray for us this morning through numerous scriptures, is that there is an expectation for maturity. There is an expectation for transformation, that Lord willing, all of us will experience throughout the whole of our lives as followers of Jesus. Last week, I was listening to a podcast by uh, Pete Scazzaro. He puts out a podcast every Tuesday. It's called the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. It's 30 minutes. I highly recommend it. It would be valuable to put into your time somewhere. And he talked about a friend of his who said this. His friend said, I was a Christian for 22 years, but instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I just kept doing the same thing over and over. I think that captures a lot of the church. I don't, know, I don't say that to be critical. I, I say that really with sorrow, that for how many of us, like, our whole lives, we've been doing this. 
Yet rather than being 22 years old, as followers of Jesus, we've just kind of done the same thing over and over and over again without any sort of forward movement or trajectory. I think as we talk about the spirit and prayer-led life, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a life that has a trajectory to it as a follower of Jesus. And, and really, this is, um, this is what we see in, in the New Testament. This is what we see in the life of Paul. If you, if you just want an example of what trajectory looks like, just go, go follow the life of the Apostle Paul, starting in Acts chapter 8, when he's still Saul, and he's, just, he's persecuting the church. Uh, move through Galatians. Read Galatians and notice how fiery Paul is. Uh, Paul is more fiery in Galatians than he is in other, any other letter. Galatians is also his earliest letter, most likely. And so he's, he's still pretty young, if you will, as a follower of Jesus. But by the time Paul gets to the end of his life, uh, writing, for example, pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, you'll notice that the tone almost completely changes. Paul still has his fire. He still has his, his passion and his zeal. It's just different. There's just something about it that has more of a, I don't know, a, a tender, parental, patient overtone to it. And, and, and what you see in just, just in reading Paul's letters is a trajectory of a spirit and prayer-led life. And that's, that's our desire as followers of Jesus. That's our, our ambition as a local church is to not just do some Christian thing, but to live life as disciples of Jesus in such a way that we are, oh, that we're setting up a generational trajectory that doesn't just have impact for the next five years, but perhaps for the next 105 years. Like, those are the terms that we need to think in. I love how already there's just been some hints of, of conversation in, in Taproot among some of the parents with younger kids, which is like, you know, 75% of us. But just already this, these ideas of like watching each other's kids get married, which is terrifying on one hand, but is also only like potentially seven, six, seven years out. Right? I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the reality. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and watching our kids have kids, and by God's grace, their kids have kids, like thinking generational in terms of the, our trajectory as a local church of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I think this is what the spirit and prayer life leads us to. Right? Like we want to be a, a lasting gospel presence here in this city, in this valley for generations to come. So we can rejoice and be thankful that we've been given this space. Lord willing, it enables us to establish that reality. But this life doesn't just happen. It, it will not just happen if we sit back and think that it will just happen. And so last week, our last point was uh, that the spirit and, led life is, spirit and prayer led life is cultivated. 
And so this morning, I just want to continue working that point out and talking specifically about how we cultivate this life. And so we just have two points this morning, uh, which you all know means about 30. Um, two points, several subpoints under each. First point is this, uh, the need for cultivation. And then our second point is just going to be the how or uh, the way of cultivation, okay? So the need for cultivation and the way of cultivation. Let's, let's get to work. The need for cultivation. So as we talked about, like I said, the spirit-led life is a life of cultivation. It doesn't just happen. And this is what we're capturing when we say spirit and prayer-led. I think often when we think of the spirit's work, um, we just kind of think that it's hands-off for us. And I think that, uh, my wife pointed this out to me last week, we, we, uh, we quoted John 3, 8, which Jesus talks about, it likens the Holy Spirit to the wind, right? The reality of wind and air, think of wind and air, is it's always around us, right? It's always around you. And even, even if air or the wind feels absolutely still, there's always some bit of movement. And when you think of wind or air, there's, there's you have, you know, Moments, seasons where it's really still, seems really calm. And then others where it's blowing harder. And so the Spirit works like that. We always have the Spirit with us, in us, as followers of Jesus. But I think where we, where we tend to get off is we don't cultivate an awareness of the presence of the Spirit with us. And that's what we need to learn to do, is how, how do we cultivate this awareness. And why, then, of course, does this matter? Why do we need to cultivate a particular kind of life in the Spirit? Well, four reasons for us. Number one is this. Discipleship requires it. Discipleship requires it. Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey to observe the things that he commanded or taught them. And so what we need to understand about what Jesus teaches is that this doesn't just happen. Yeah, it doesn't just happen. To be a disciple implies learning and teaching. It literally means learner. And so it, it implies this reality in learning and teaching what? Well, the way of Jesus. And what particularly about Jesus? Well, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Or five, sorry, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount specifically is what Jesus is often referencing. And so this is a life that has to be cultivated. It, Discipleship just implies this reality. It, it implies that there's, there's something that we, that we have to do, something that we are going to have to labor at, something we're going to have to stay committed to. Discipleship to Jesus is, as Eugene Peterson said, a long obedience in the same direction. This is just, it's one of my favorite phrases in all of the world. I think if we, can, if we can define discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction, that will really begin to reshape the way that we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because 
I think any of us, you just take that into any other part of our lives and, and you apply like a long obedience in the same direction. You know that in order for us to stay committed to anything requires a lot of effort, right? A lot of effort. Just think of, I'll just think of marriage. My wife and I just celebrated 16 years on Friday of, of yeah, which is super exciting. And uh, so I woke up Friday morning. It's like, Abby, 16 years. And then I was curious, so I was like, hey, Google, what's the average, because we have Google in our house, right? Get it? You're supposed to laugh. Hey, Google, what's the average um, length of marriage in the United States? Anyone know? Other than people I might have told? That's really close. Eight. Eight years. The average length of a marriage in the United States is eight years long. And I don't, I'm not, and it, you know, if, if the divorce has affected any, as, I mean, it's affected probably all of us in some way, shape, or form. I'm not trying to demean or anything. I'm just saying that's the reality. New York State somehow has made it longer. They average 12 years. So I don't know what they're doing in New York, but, you know, they're doing good. My point is this. For any of us who have been committed in that kind of relationship for any length of time, we know that it doesn't just happen. Like we don't have thriving, flourishing marriages because we just sat on the couch and watched it take place. Like you could do that, but it's not going to lead to flourishing. It takes intentionality. And so it does being a disciple to Jesus. It must be cultivated. Number two need for cultivation is because we are in a war. And I think this language is, this language is interesting. It's challenging. Um, we're, we're, it's, it's, language, it's language that we're mostly unfamiliar with when it comes to being disciples of Jesus. I think it's easy for us to associate being a follower of Jesus with, with ease, um, open doors, answered prayers, you know, soft and fluffy, just, I don't know, cheesy, mushy following of Jesus. But again, if, if we just read through the New Testament, it's war language. Over and over and over again, it's war language. So listen, listen to this text, Ephesians chapter 2. Like I said, we'll be bouncing around a good bit this morning again. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, here's what Paul says. He says, in you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." What Paul does there is he, he sets up and makes clear who our war is against. And the earliest church leaders and fathers understood that there were at least three enemies. Number one, the world. Number two, the flesh. And number three, the devil. And Paul lays all of them out right here. And so we see the world, which is simply a pattern of thinking and acting that is opposed to God. Second, the flesh is disordered desires that are opposed to God and the devil, the enemy of our souls who wants to destroy us. 
Paul wants us to be aware that we are in a war against this enemy. And guess what? We're not going to be able to fight through it on our own. There is a particular kind of life that must be cultivated. The early church was very, very aware of this. We are less so today. Uh, we, I, we just don't talk about spiritual warfare enough. That's why I uh, will quote John Mark Comer a couple times during the sermon because, I don't know, it's obligatory, I guess. Um, that's why I'm so intrigued by his book, Live No Lies, because it's, it's, uh, it's not a new approach, but it is one of the more unique approaches to spiritual warfare that I've ever read. Just the way in which he especially just incorporates church history, which we tend to neglect. But, but church historians, the church fathers were well aware of this reality that we are in a war, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness that want us destroyed. And apart from cultivation, we'll be destroyed. The third reason cultivation is needed is because godliness matters. Godliness for us matters. Now, this is one of those areas where we tend to get really like, ooh, godly? <laughs> or another word for it is holiness. I'm not, I'm not sure which one we tend to dislike most. <laughs> but Repeatedly, again, throughout the New Testament, you see this, this theme, this pattern that there is, there is a holiness, there is a godliness that is expected of disciples of Jesus. After all, the, the, um, the trajectory for us as disciples to be a disciple is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And who's more holy than Jesus? Uh, we could also talk, uh, what, First Peter chapter 2, which talks about the church being what kind of people? Holy. A holy people. A, a royal priesthood, a set-apart community. And so we need to just joyfully embrace the reality that godliness actually is expected of us. Like, this actually is the trajectory for us. Now, not to save us. We always got to throw that in, right? Because someone's always going to be like, legalism. No, not. This is, this is actually a lot of what Paul's, Paul's uh, arguments are. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul's arguing against a, a group of Pharisees called the circumcision party. Really bad party. Um, but their whole thing was, Let's try to add works to the finished work of Jesus and, and say that that's what saves people, right? Like the, the Gentiles, they're being included into this community and they need to, Jesus isn't enough, essentially. We're not saying that. Jesus' finished work is absolutely sufficient for us. But what we understand is that it also calls us into something, Right? Uh, so a couple, a couple of texts to help us out here. Hebrews. Listen to what Hebrews... Or actually, it's, I have it right here. Hebrews 12, 14 says this. Hebrews 12, 14. 
strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hear the last part, especially. The author of Hebrews is teaching the church that we're to strive, labor towards something. He says, labor, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if we were just to to take that verse in and of itself, how important is it for us to strive for holiness? How important? Really important. Why? Because he says, without this, you will not see the Lord. That's just the Bible. It's not me. It's Scripture. Listen to this, too. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 says this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you hear hear the value in that? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I think one of the things that I love most about how Paul communicates this is just the tension, where he's able to just weave together these realities of the finished work of Jesus and also the the effort that that produces in us. Uh, I think it's uh, Dallas... Willard that tells us that the the grace drives, it fuels our effort as followers of Jesus. And so Paul is more than comfortable to use language like we toil and we strive and we train ourselves for godliness. Uh, the The language there is it would have brought to light like the idea of um basically Olympic athletes in Greco-Roman culture. That was an essential component to to the Greco-Roman world was athletic training. And so Paul Paul is taking that language and he's incorporating it into what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so the, the imagery would have conjured up all that, I mean, we're watching the Olympics right now, right? Some of us, I don't know. How many of you are watching the Olympics How many of you know that they didn't get to the Olympics by sitting on a couch? Like they train ridiculously. I I love when they kind of do little snapshots of some of the athletes and then show their their training. It's insane just the amount of hours, time, effort, energy that they put into being an expert in their sport. Uh, A perishable wreath is what Paul would call it. And so he, he... clearly tells us that training for godliness is of more value, Because in it, we obtain an imperishable wreath. And it's it's valuable not only for our future, but also for our present life. It makes a difference for us, to us, now. And so what we see then is that transformation and maturity are our goal. 
This is the answer to the trajectory question that I asked at the beginning. What's our trajectory? Well, as a, as a church, it ought to be one of transformation and maturity. The New Testament gives us a vision for a people, that is the church, who are being transformed and maturing into Christ-likeness. So again, just a couple of passages for us. Romans 12, we are obviously familiar with. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, One of my favorites is Colossians chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says in regards to his goal, his, his trajectory, his aim in life as a minister of the gospel. He says this, if I can flip to it. In chapter one of Colossians, verse 28 and 29, he says, him, that is Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul lays out like his goal. His goal is not just to get people in. His goal is to present a mature church to Jesus. And he labors, he toils, he struggles towards that reality. Because it's hard. One more for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And, and, and listen to how this really is just a picture of the Spirit in prayer-led life for us. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so there you just have this this picture of how a Spirit-led life and transformation, a transformed life, they go hand in hand. That we are, as we continue to see Jesus, as we continue to be led by the Spirit, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. That is the reality for the disciple. Um, I was reading up on Romans 7 last week because we had kind of referenced Romans 7 last Sunday. And Scott McKnight, in his little commentary called Reading Romans Backwards, he actually talks about Romans 5 through 8. And he, and he says that Romans 5 through 8 is actually a comprehensive vision toward transformation in Christ through the Spirit. And so if you're just to read Romans 5 through 8, and want to just capture what is, what's happening, Paul's giving a vision to the church of transformation. And he's saying that it doesn't happen by obey, obeying the law. It actually happens by being in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is actually what Romans 7 gets at. Romans 7 is this whole representation of how the law is not sufficient to bring about the transformation that we desire. But being a people who are in Christ through the Spirit does. 
And so it's just this repeated reality that we see in Scripture. And I think we need to say this, that it's, it's not a reality that's easy. I, I, don't, I don't want us to, to, to believe that transformation is easy. Or maybe let's even do this. How many of you want to experience transformation? I want to make sure that I'm talking to people who want to be transformed. Maybe I don't, I don't want to assume. I assume that there's something in every single one of us that we're like, I really wish I could like, kill that. Like, I really wish I could be done with that, whatever that may be. Right? So it's good. What we need to understand is it's not easy to kill whatever that may be. And so we train ourselves. We discipline ourselves for godliness. Um, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be restarting our apprenticeship class in March. And the whole focus of this next 10 weeks is on the uh, spiritual disciplines practices. And one of the books that we're going to be reading, it's by Donald Whitney. I forgot to write down the title. I can't remember what it's called. It's a really good book, though. And he says, he says this, I thought is, is helpful. He says that when the Holy Spirit indwells someone, that person begins to prize and pursue holiness. Thus, as we have seen in Hebrews 12, 14, anyone who is not striving for holiness will not see the Lord. And the reason he or she will not see the Lord in eternity is because he or she does not know the Lord now. For those who know him are given his Holy Spirit, and all those who, in, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are compelled to pursue holiness. Now, again, to try to set us at ease, that's not to communicate some sort of like perfection being achieved. Again, Paul in Galatians 5, Romans 5 through 8 is well aware of the, the struggle, the fight. Uh, the language that's there in Galatians 5, uh, when it talks about the works of the flesh, and, and when he talks about those who do them will not see the kingdom of, of God, the language is that of practice. Like he's saying that those who make a practice of these things are really demonstrating that they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit because they're making a practice of fleshy things more than of spiritual things, right? And so I think just for us to ask this, this question, like, do we desire to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness? And you don't need to be afraid to do that. We, we don't need, to, we don't need to, to automatically think to ourselves, okay, if I pursue holiness, if I pursue godliness, then I'm, I'm a legalist. It, it's, it's not that quick of a jump. But there is, there is a, a, a proper placement or understanding in our hearts that we need to have where we, where we know, we wholeheartedly know that we are saved by grace through the finished work of Jesus alone that then drives us towards a pursuit of holiness and godliness, which is flourishing. It's flourishing. It's not drudgery. It's not like, oh, God wants me to be holy. Man, this is horrible. No, it is a flourishing life. Okay? Um, and the final reason for us to cultivate a spirit-led life is because we're cultivating something. It's the reality. 
If we're not cultivating a life of discipleship to Jesus, we are cultivating a life of discipleship to something else. You are being formed. We cannot not be formed. We are consuming, reading, listening, being informed and shaped by something or someone. It's either the truth of Jesus or something else. That's the only two options. This is how Dallas Willard puts it. He says this about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, without regard to any specifically religious context or tradition, is the process by which the human spirit or will is given a definite form or character. It is a process that happens to everyone. The most despicable as well as the most admirable of persons have had a spiritual formation. Terrorists, as well as saints, are the outcome of spiritual formation. Their spirits or hearts have been formed, period. There's no escaping it. So we're being cultivated by something or into something. It might as well be the ways of Jesus, right? If, If the way of Jesus is the flourishing life, would we not want to be cultivated into that way of life? I think we would. So, We're being formed into Christ or we are believing the lie that we're free to do whatever we want, not realizing that we're actually being formed into the religion of self. Here's the reality, and and Comer gets at this in his book. We are not free to do whatever we want. I I know that might feel like offensive. (laughs) We are not free to do whatever we want. To be a follower of Jesus is actually a willing constraint for the purpose of true freedom. When we talk about membership, we are absolutely talking about placing ourselves willingly under a constraint in a community for the purpose of godliness and and representation of our king. Um, Here's here's how Comer communicates this in Live No Lies. He says, be true to yourself, this idea that's pervasive in our world today. Be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Here's why. Why? Giving in to the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery and, in the worst-case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. In in other words, we're, we're either being formed more into the image of Jesus or we're being deformed by everything else around us. In the The guise of the deformation is that it's actually freedom and good for us when it's not. It is deceptive. And so these are the realities that we need to be aware of in regards to why. Like, why do we need cultivation? Because of these things. 
So then the second point is how. How do we do this? What is the way of cultivation? Remember, from above, we said train yourself for godliness. We are to be training ourselves for godliness. We are to discipline ourselves to practice particular things, particular practices for the purpose of godliness. Here's the reality. Discipline leads to true freedom and happiness. Discipline, which is really closely related to what other word? Disciple, exactly. Discipleship. Discipline leads to true freedom and happiness. Now, we, we do this because, again, we're living out of who we are in Christ. We are, this is the beauty of, of, of the good news of Jesus, we are holy. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, every single one of us in Christ, we are saints. Like, that's the declared reality of who we are. But then we're invited into this particular way of living that produces freedom. And so we need not fear discipline as Christians. We need to not be afraid of establishing some rules and some guidelines in our lives that keep us on a trajectory of transformation and maturity. Here's some other quotes to help us out. Elizabeth Elliot says this. She says, quote, freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, as in they don't go together. When in fact, freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. So while stressing that freedom, while stressing that freedom requires discipline, let us not forget to emphasize that discipline rewards us with freedom. The example uh, that... Whitney uses in his book is an example of a guitar player. So how many of you have ever witnessed, you've, you've watched just an incredible guitar player who you, you like, you know, uh, uh, Brad Paisley. No? Um, dang it. Uh, that's all I got. John Mayer. There. He's good. Does that work? Anyways, Brian, help me out. Eddie Van Halen. There we go. <laughs> Joe Bonamassa. Anyways, you've seen that person, you know, Brad Paisley, playing the guitar <laughs> with extreme skill and excellence and ease. That's the most beautiful part about watching people who are masters of their craft is the ease with which they're able to do it. But how did they get there? Discipline. Like hours upon hours upon hours of discipline. Again, just referencing the Olympics, man, with the, snow, the snowboard halfpipe, uh, the Japanese guy. Did y'all see that? The triple cork dude? If you haven't, go back and watch the triple cork guy. Three times, three times, he is able to, like, with absolute ease, like seamless. Just, he goes 23 feet in the air and flips three times and spins circles and lands. Like, that should blow us away. How do you get there? Discipline, right? How do we grow and mature and tr- transform in godliness? 
discipline. And discipline is challenging at first. But eventually, guess what? The more that we do it, the more joyful, really, it becomes. And, And in a sense, easy. Because we've practiced what, we're, what we want to move towards. Okay? Um, so how do we do this? We need to, my suggestion would be that we collectively develop a rule of life. Now, when I say rule, I'm not talking about rules. Uh, also, we're not talking about something new. We're talking about something that's really old, like church history earliest church fathers old, uh, were accustomed to practicing what would have been known as a rule of life. And, and here's, here's what a rule of life is. A rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that help us create space in our busy world. I, I love that language. It's not saying in our busy lives, but in our busy world for us to be with Jesus become like Jesus and do what Jesus did or to live life to the full, John 10, 10, in his kingdom and in alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. So when we talk about what we're about to talk about, this is, this is it. This is the definition. The idea of the rule of life, the language actually comes from a, a Latin word which means trellis. And no one would deny that a trellis is a good thing for a garden or for a vine. And so the the image that we're supposed to have is that of a trellis in a vineyard. And just as a trellis enables a vine to bear the maximum amount of fruit by keeping it off the ground and free from predators and disease, so we need structure to abide in Jesus. Jesus teaches us in John 10, no, John 15, he tells us to abide in him. Why? Because apart from abiding in him, we can do nothing. Nothing. So a rule of life is a structure that helps us to abide in him. In other words, it's not a legalistic to-do list, but rather a life-giving structure for freedom, growth, and joy. A life-giving structure for freedom, growth, and joy. What then does it look like? Well, there are seven core, at least seven, there's, there's more, um, but there are at least seven core practices of the way of Jesus. Uh, so this is, this is what we've been wanting to see in the Gospel of Matthew, is, is learning the way of Jesus. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus? Well, we become like Jesus and we do what Jesus did. And if we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus regularly did these things. So I'm just going to work through them quickly. First, silence and solitude. What we understand is, uh, well, let's do this. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus would pour himself out in ministry. And then what would he do? He would retreat. And he would go up mountains or he would go to quiet places. And he would spend time in silence and solitude, time with the Father. And he did so for the purpose of what? For going back out. Right? So, so when we talk about the rule of life, we're not talking about some sort of like escape from the world. When we talk about silence and solitude, we're not, we're not talking about always being in silence and solitude. 
We're talking about a practice that, that fills us, that, yeah, that, that energizes us in the Father, Son, and Spirit, and then enables us to go back out. We also see in Scripture over and over and over again that God meets us in the silence, in the waiting, and in the stillness. Um, and so this might just look like, uh, I'll get to that later. Uh, number two, Scripture reading. Scripture reading, meditation, and study. Uh, it's essential to incorporate each of these layers. So reading is great. That's a great place to start. If you've never read the Bible, I would just encourage you to read through the Bible over and over and over again and just know that it's going to be really hard for you to understand initially. <laughs> but keep reading. And then as you progress in reading, uh, be meditating. That is thinking deeply, filling your mind intentionally with Scripture. Uh, and then delving into study. Picking up commentaries and study Bibles and other resources that will help you to dive deeper into what Scripture is teaching and learning how to actually interpret Scripture, to be able to teach Scripture. That is, disciples who make disciples. Uh, third is prayer, which is just central to life with God and is expected to be constant in our lives. Again, Paul says that in verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Fasting. Fasting is simply a willing abstinence from food. Uh, and there are a few things that will help us to kill our flesh than fasting. Simplicity, which is structuring our lives in such a way that it becomes more freeing. Because when we have too much stuff, it's overwhelming. Jesus lived a life of simplicity. Uh, what is this? Sixth, living in community. That is partnering together in this journey of discipleship to Jesus. Again, membership. We, we are communicating that we can't do this and do not want to do this on our own. We need one another to stay the course in this life. We'll see that again in a moment. And then Sabbath. Sabbath is an intentional day set aside for rest and worship. For most of us, this includes the gathering of the church on Sundays. Um, this is something that I'm, I'm just trying to learn and incorporate in my own life. And so the way, here's just some of what this is looking like for me right now. Most of my intentional uh, time is in the morning. I like to be up early in the morning. So uh, I'm going to say this. I'm not trying to tell you all that you need to do it just like me because you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. Uh, so I've been getting up at 4.30 because it's, <laughs> that's what, exactly what I'm saying. 4.30, I found is just a beautiful time. Like for some reason, I'm wide awake at 4.30 and I go out and I, the first thing I do is I make my coffee. Like that's part of my, my ritual. Make coffee, get my coffee, and I try to sit down and have at least just like 10 minutes of just stillness. In silence. No one else is awake. Uh, usually there's an owl somewhere outside the window. It's beautiful, wonderful. Okay? And just sit still. And then after sitting still, maybe just kind of taking some deep breaths for a little bit, uh, I open scripture. Right now I'm reading through the Gospel of John. So I've just been reading one or two chapters in the morning through the Gospel of John. And I'm trying to be attentive to something that stands out. What is what, what does the Spirit want me to hear and receive from the Gospels this morning? 
And how, how can I mature? How can I abide in Jesus? And so this morning, uh, it was uh, John 10.10. 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. And just resting in that reality that, that he is our good shepherd. And then just taking, taking whatever it is that stands out and just kind of meditating on it and rolling it over and over and over again in your mind and then potentially even just writing it down because if you write it down, it will stick with you throughout the day. Uh, and then prayer... Uh, for me, I've really enjoyed lately not trying to put too many words to prayer, but really just holding prayer in silence. Did you know that you can pray silently? Like you don't have to actually make noises with your mouth. Prayer is far more just broad than what we often understand. And so just continue to sit in silence. And there's so many areas in which I want to mature myself. I know that apart from being disciplined, uh, I become anxious, overwhelmed, stressed, irritable, so on and so forth. And so these are just some of the ways in which we can cultivate this spirit and prayer-led life. And here's here's what I want to close with. I don't have this in here, but here's the reality. We, um, let's do this. The life of discipleship is one of perseverance and endurance. If we do not cultivate a spirit and prayer-led life in the context of community, we will not persevere. We just won't. Paul makes examples of people in the New Testament in this reality, and I think we have all experienced this reality either personally or seen it in someone else. That when a life becomes formed or deformed more by the world around us, it moves us away from Jesus. And when we don't have community or we don't allow community to speak into our lives, it's detrimental. And so the very reality is that we are not going to persevere as disciples apart from cultivating this type of life. I'm going to close with, with this, uh, Ephesians 6. Paul says in verse 10 to the end, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. I just love this. This is Paul's way of saying, I need your help. Praying for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.
Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would enable us to be a people who are cultivating a spirit and prayer-led life that you would enable us to put into practice these disciplines, not fearing them, but embracing them and, and rejoicing and having joy in a trajectory of transformation and godliness. Help us to labor in this together as a community, to be with and for one another and graciously, patiently, continually pointing one another to King Jesus. It's in his good name that we pray, amen.